should we take it? And I'm like, yay. And they're like, well, it could pull the servers down. And I'm like, I don't care. Let's get it out there. Hello, and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Ama Coleman, Technology Engagement Director at the Co-op. Welcome, Ama. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. We heard about you via uh, co-founder of One Team Gov, Kit. Yourself and her were spotted grabbing a post-conference tipple at the Savoy recently. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, I don't know who's been letting out those secrets, but yeah, uh, we were both at an event called ThoughtWorks Live which was held in London and Kit was talking a lot about her work in DWP and it seemed like we should really have known each other because we share so many Twitter people in common and I just thought she was amazing and her presentation was fantastic so I grabbed her afterwards and said we definitely have to sit down and have a glass of wine. She normally goes for a gin so it must have been a good day. (laughs) Yeah it was a very good day. We've watched a lot of your conference speeches and read a lot about you obviously in preparation for this podcast. We understand that you've had a really eclectic path into technology. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? I guess it's quite unusual, really. It's one of those things that doesn't really seem to make sense as you're doing it. But when you add it all together and you look back, it makes a bit more sense. So I guess I've had three careers in my life so far. I started in the arts. My very first job was working as an arts administrator in a theatre company. And I then went on to become the artistic director of an arts centre when I was living in Ireland. It was called the Bell Table Arts Centre. And then when I left the arts, I also worked for the Arts Council for a period of time. I became a journalist. I was a features writer. I had a weekly column in a paper called the Irish Examiner. And then I also subsequently wrote for the Irish Times. And then I decided, well, I better get a proper job. As jobs in both the arts and journalism can be a bit precarious and probably even more so now. And I decided to go into government. Across those years, certainly as a journalist, I was an early adopter with the internet. I was always very interested in the internet. When I went into government, I was very interested in the kind of potential that social media had in terms of connecting government more closely to people. I worked in local government in the UK, and then I moved to City Hall. And that's really where my kind of interest in technology deepened because I was responsible for setting up what was called the London Data Store, which was a platform for all of London's public sector data. It was quite revolutionary, I guess, at the time. It hadn't really been done much before. And so I needed to connect with a lot of technologists because at that point, I didn't really even know what an API was. Really, that was when my interest in technology deepened. And then subsequently, I went to government digital services, which, of course, has been an exemplar in trying to reposition how public services are accessed by users. We absolutely love stories from City Hall because a lot of them have a bit of a thick of it flavor. Do you have any good stories from City Hall or anything that you worked on when you were there that you were particularly proud of? The data store was a really challenging thing. For example, working with Transport for London for them to open up their data, I mean, that was hugely radical for them because, of course, you're asking them to trust third-party developers when they were used to being the canonical source of truths. That was a very interesting year in terms of trying to encourage them to do this and to take this risk, which they did. They went from being appalled at the idea of releasing their data to actually being able to see the benefit of it. We had our hair-raising moments, such as when the developers who were working in Transport for London were in contact with my IT guys in City Hall, and they said, hey, would you like the link to the TrackerNet feed? The TrackerNet feed is the feed that tells you when the tubes are coming. You know, next tube is in three minutes or two minutes, etc. And my guys in IT came to me and said, hey, we've been offered this feed. 
should we take it? And I'm like, yay. And they're like, well, it could pull the servers down. And I'm like, I don't care. Let's get it out there. We got it out there. But because it was at that level, policy imperative was there. But this was just done at a kind of IT guy to IT guy saying, would you like this feed? We didn't have any documentation for it. So, of course, once the developers found it, they were hammering it. And we did indeed take the servers down for about seven hours. And I remember subsequently meeting a guy who worked in London Underground. And he said, hi, I'm the guy who nearly got fired. That was kind of an interesting moment. But the upshot of it was, of course, Charles Arthur wrote about it in The Guardian. Matthew Somerville, who was an independent developer, made a map showing the tubes moving in real time, which Londoners had never experienced. And that was kind of a breakthrough moment. While it was done slightly under the radar in a bit of a chaotic way, it showed Transport for London themselves, I think, what a difference making that data visible could have. Amazing. It seems crazy that in the days of people being totally reliant on CityMapper that that data just wasn't available before. So that's such a cool story. It was one of those occasions, actually, where it's very hard when you work in government sometimes to see the output of your labor, particularly if you're dealing at a kind of strategic level. I remember quite clearly once the bus data was released, it was a bus stop right outside my house in London. And I was watching the apps. I was going like, oh, yes, it's working. And then being able to stand outside. We didn't have an electronic display on our bus stop. And there was an older woman standing next to me. I said to her, oh, yeah, the bus will be here in two minutes. And she was like, how do you know that? And I'm going, because I can get it on my phone. She was like, magic. So it was really nice as a public official to feel I was part of that and something that directly impacted citizens in such an important way because transport and frictionless commute is so important to Londoners and others in many cities. Probably literally saved hours and hours of people's lives. So thanks for that. You mentioned that you went to work with Mike Bracken and the gang at GDS as head of engagement. We saw that part of that was rewriting government social media policy, and I was just really interested in that. What was it like trying to get senior leaders in government to embrace social media as opposed to fear it? We were lucky we had Sir Bob Kerslake, who was then head of the civil service. And he really got it because I remember Mike and I went to see him to discuss him going on social media. And he had a team of other civil servants around him who were all very cautious about him going on social media. And one of the things they said to him was that he should tweet as Hawks, H-O-C-S, head of the civil service. And Bob immediately said to them, I'm not going to do that. You know, nobody trusts institutions. They trust people. So I'm going to go on as Sir Bob Perslake. And he really got the idea of social being able to bring the civil service together because people were talking about not unlike yourselves in terms of one team go, but they talk about this department or that department rather than one civil service. So he was very keen to use social to do that. And in terms of rewriting, I mean, one of the first things we did was we crowdsourced it on Twitter, put out a tweet saying, hey, I'm writing social media guidance for governments. What should be in? What should be out? So it was a very open process. This is something that I think is very important is that kind of openness and accountability saves government in the end, because you would imagine there would have been a lot of nervousness about social media. And civil servants, you know, people saying, oh, they'll be on Facebook all day or, you know, they'll be wasting all that public time on Twitter. And so we had, I think it was at TCAMP London, once I had kind of collated responses and written up a first draft, we went to TCAMP, which is a gathering of government geeks and geeks outside government. It's quite informal. It's run by Jane O'Loughlin from GDS. And we put the document out to everybody and they shredded it and took it apart. And we went back and rewrote the whole document. And the upshot of that was by the time we had to release it to the media, It went out very easily because there was no surprises. People had been part of pulling it together. But I think that was quite unique in terms of just being open about something that the civil service would traditionally be very fearful of. Did you have anyone who was maybe a detractor from social media or who just didn't want to get on board? And how did you go about actually persuading them to make this change? 
there was some nervousness, I think, about the ministry being on Twitter, which I could understand, I guess, if some politicians are quite fearful of that. But we had very good people. And a perfect example would be Claire, who was in the Department of Transport. She was really, really open to that. Of course, you have some press offices are, are rightly very nervous about people having such open access. In the main, I have to say it wasn't as difficult as I would have expected. Of course, you had people who said, no, I'm not doing that. But in the main, I think the support was positive. The other thing that you were responsible for when you were head of engagement was the product releases for the exemplars. And we were just wondering if there were any exemplars that caused any major buzz, good or bad. Everything around GDS caused a major buzz, to be honest, because we had such an active community outside of government in the kind of tech media in the developer community, in the technical communities. I think there was always excitement about products that we released. And obviously, GovUK was a hugely exciting and attracted a huge amount of attention. That was the first demonstration of what GDS was capable of doing. And people could really see the difference that that made. It was kind of revolutionary in a way. There was always a massive amount of excitement. And we blogged pretty incessantly leading up to each product. It was a full-on job, I can tell you, in terms of keeping all those conversations going. It must have been really, really exciting, especially in the early days. When you look back at the blogs from that time, it's just all totally shiny and new. And they've actually managed to keep it up really well in terms of that excitement. One of the things that we noticed in your bio is that you've had really senior roles throughout your career. What challenges has that brought you and how have you handled those challenges? I was lucky, I guess. I got a very senior job working in the Arts Centre in Ireland when I was only 23. I can remember that at the interview, the board never asked me my age. So they were quite shocked when I left a couple of years later. I did an interview, an Irish version of Desert Island Discs, and I said what my age had been when I joined the Arts Centre and the board were quite shocked. I think that's one of the advantages. I've always seemed a little bit older than I am, which now that I'm getting into my 50s, it maybe isn't quite so much of an advantage. I've always been a person who's been around change, and you have to have a certain resilient personality to do that. That's what I do best. That's what I say on my blog site and my Twitter profile. Mostly I'm about change. When I look back, a lot of the jobs that I had were about implementing change or doing things differently. And speaking of change, you decided to set up your own consultancy. What was your motivation for doing that rather than working within an organisation? Well, I'd done 13 years as a public official in various roles in local government and city hall. So I had done local, regional and national governments. I was coming up to my 50th birthday, truth be told. I didn't want to be in government after my 50s because I thought I'd be too scared to leave. So the motive was really to get out there and take that risk. I had worked as a consultant in the past when I was younger, so I wasn't really afraid of that. I wanted to be a bit more in charge of my own destiny, and I wanted to be able to have my own voice, because when you work as a civil servant or a public official, you're restricted in what you can say. I just wanted to be myself. That was one of the first things I changed in my Twitter accounts. Tweets are definitely all my responsibility, and it felt kind of liberating. I wasn't attracted to go back working full-time in an organization, because I also wanted to have a bit more freedom to write and to pursue some of my own interests. And that was what drove me. I can definitely understand that motivation. One thing we'd love to hear is we clearly face really different challenges, whether you're working in or with or outside the public sector. Are there any that you've particularly noticed and either enjoyed or not found so good? I'm the kind of person that if I don't enjoy what I'm doing, I'll leave because I've done a lot of change work. Doing change work can be tiring after a while, but once you feel that you're gaining momentum or making progress, that's the thing that really spurs me on, especially if it's doing something that's for betterment of society. You feel that you as a person can make a particular difference. I certainly felt that in my role in City Hall. You know, I wasn't a career public servant, and so I could take risks. 
that might have not have been possible otherwise. And you work with a lot of senior C-suite executives. What are the biggest changes or the most common problems that they ask you to help them with? Or that I end up helping them with, whether they ask me or not. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Going back to the social media example in government, it helps when you're a little bit older. It's not like they're having to take advice from some younger person, which invariably C-suite leaders are kind of a little bit more cautious about. I can give them lots of examples over a long career where you can say, look, this is what I did here and nobody died. Or this is what this organization did and nobody fell over. It's that confidence. I did, for example, work as an associate for Ernst & Young. I did some really interesting work with them around digital transformation and the threats to their business through automation, robotics, etc. And the partners were incredibly free in the sense that they never vetted any of my talks. I gave one talk to them, which was about how do you audit virtual currency? pretty traditional firm, they were like, that's not even a thing, really, is it? And I'm going, no, no, it's a thing. And I remember standing up in front of, I don't know, 100 senior partners, quoting Marx in the age of the internet. And one of the partners tweeted out, Emer Coleman's quoting Marx in the boardroom. It helps if you're older and they have more confidence in you. It's easier to make change that way sometimes. These were the challenges for GDS and the civil servant. We had lots and lots of young developers coming in and they didn't look or feel like traditional civil servants. What I really do with those leaders is try and get them to understand they don't need to understand technology themselves. I mean, they don't need to be Twitter users, right? They just need to understand what the impacts are going to be on their business and what the outcomes are for their users. It's about saying to them, hey, hey, don't worry about the technology. You just need to understand what these outcomes are going to be and how you need to prepare for them as a leader. And do you find that those kinds of senior leaders often conflate risk with uncertainty? And how do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Some of them you'll find will be talking about blockchain, but people in their organizations are having to use terrible technology, for example. So they have a surface level thing of they can intellectually see what some of the future is bringing, but they can't look at what's the actual technical or digital transformation that's required in their own organization. So that can be quite strange in that they'll have this high level grasp of a bit of the future, but then sitting underneath that, a lack of understanding of how outdated technology is really affecting their workers internally. There is a natural fear of not seeming on top of what they should know. For those leaders who really haven't kept up to speed or haven't been internet adopters themselves, they're fearful of expressing what they don't know. You have to be sensitive to that and you have to be sensitive to the fact that people have built a long career on certainty and now are looking into a very uncertain future and really don't have the skills to deal with that. And so it's about being sensitive to that and being able to help them on that journey and being mindful of where they are as senior leaders. And speaking of being a little bit more open and innovative, we've seen that you work with the Federation. Can you tell us a bit about that and what your vision is for it? The Federation is basically a community of tech companies and startups, large technology companies like ThoughtWorks. So we've got obviously Co-op Digital and it's sponsored by the Co-op itself. And what we wanted to do was to see, could we look at what a more inclusive digital economy looks like? And that, of course, is a space that the co-op has lots of skin in the game over many, many years in terms of doing things better for society. That's wedded with my concept. I've been doing a lot of work around what I call technoethics or highlighting the lack of ethics and technology among our various tech giants. When Mike Bracken went to co-op as their chief digital officer, he said to me, look, we have this building. Could you have a think about what we could do with it that would really cement our place as the co-op in the age of the Internet? I was moving to Manchester and I went, yeah, great. I've been working there for two years, basically building that community. We're very fortunate now to have funding from Luminate Group, which is part of the Umidir network. 
that allows us to do two things. We can subsidize desks for any tech startup that wants to set up as a social enterprise, a cooperative or a community interest company. We're trying to incentivize away from that very homogenous model we have in the tech sector, which is pump in venture capital money, rush to exit, and then five people benefit. So what we're trying to do is generate a view that says, look, let's build sustainable digital businesses that give people work and employment, because that's what we need into the future. We can provide them access to desk space, to the event space, to me and the team. We also fund what's called Federation Presents, and that's a very high-level series of talks, which, again, focuses around issues in an inclusive digital economy, such as data and privacy, reciprocity. The essence is to create a kind of a movement, I guess, within the tech sector, saying there are different ways to do this. We can look at different economic models. And at its core, we must have a sense of what are we giving that to our communities and asking questions such as what's your technology displacing? And if it is displacing jobs, what's your conscience and responsibility in terms of ameliorating the dark side of that? Speaking of that and the idea about having these different models for how we build and sell technology, one of the things that we love when we were researching you was how open and honest you are online and how you share these big ideas that you have at conferences and in blogs. So we'd just like to dive a little bit more into those. One of the things that I noticed is I think you're one of the first people that we've had on this podcast that has a non-executive director role. Can you explain what that is and what they do? I'm non-executive director with Transport API which is a startup based in London. Jonathan Raper is the founder there, and he was one of my collaborators in the London Data Store. So transport was obviously a key area that we wanted to release because we felt if we could get that data released, it would stimulate economic development. And Transport API is a good example of the result of that. We've a company that's now 11 people strong. And we supply major transport organizations such as National Express, First Group, Heathrow. I was more actively involved in the company a number of years ago. As non-executive director, really my role is to in some cases, call the founders to account. Other directors are meeting the company objectives. But I also would do things like make as many introductions for the company as I could to my contact and generally be a listening ear and provide a bit of counsel. It's not as much a hands-on role. So obviously, I would attend board meetings, but we tend to do those remotely through Hangouts, kind of a light touch governance. You're obviously used to working with really senior leaders and C-suite leaders. And you're obviously a leader yourself. What does good leadership look like to you? Good leadership is about openness. The more open you are, the less defensive you are, the more you learn. And the willingness to be accountable is very important. I wrote a blog today about the Billy Bragg concert I went to at the weekend. I was doing some research around it. He'd given a talk to the Bank of England very recently about accountability and accountability being an antidote to authoritarianism. And he finished that talk by asking five questions, which were formulated by Tony Benn. What does good leadership look like? Or what does accountability and leadership look like? There are five questions. What power do you have? Where did you get it? In whose interests do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how do we get rid of you? And I think going forward, the most successful leaders are going to be leaders who have answers to those questions and who are prepared to be accountable and transparent. And speaking of accountability, transparency and power, following the recent political climates in the UK and the US especially, we've seen a lot of people working in technology doing a bit of soul searching about the dangers of our current or future technologies and the impact of those. What, if anything, worries you about the future of tech? I was amused, if not slightly horrified, 
when I saw today the play that the large tech companies are now making for health. And I thought, God, isn't it enough that you have all our content, all our time, and now you want our bodies? That's probably the nightmare scenario. People are only beginning to wake up now as to the level of compromise that they have made in terms of engaging with technology companies. There's been a huge lack of maturity in these companies in terms of facing up to their responsibilities. I have found the geopolitical situation we're in quite bad for my own sense of sanity. When we were growing up, we always felt bad things happened, but at some point, the people who agreed with you were going to be in government and they could make everything all right. And it looks like that's slipping away from us now. I worry a lot about the impact that tech companies have and whether or not regulation is going to catch up in time before more damage is done. And one particular part of technology, and especially the role of women in the tech sector, we saw one of your talks when you took us back to when you were 26 and living in Ireland, and you listed all the things you couldn't do, which you can do now, including access to reproductive rights, for example. Have you seen changes for women in the tech sector recently? And what else do you think we need to do? I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine in Federation recently, because again, inclusion in tech and diversity in tech is something that we ask the people who work in Federation to commit to. She was suggesting having some workshops. And I said to her, let's not have any more workshops on this because it's a known problem. And what needs to happen is that the industry now needs to just hire more diverse people. All of the research shows us it isn't even a question of following the money. I mean, when you look at the statistics and you look at the research, it tells us over and over that diverse companies by both gender and race make more money. And it's ironic to me that this seems to be the only place in which following the money doesn't even do it. I really think it's time for senior leaders to step up and start acting on what the solutions are. It's not like we don't know what the problems are. We have companies that are culturally built to reflect white males. And it is the men that we need to stand up on this. I don't need to go to another group of women talking about what we need to do to get women in tech. What I need to see is a group of men saying, what do we need to do to get women in tech? I saw a brilliant quote recently, which has been repeated many times. How do I hire more people of color? And the person said, hire more people of color. It's really not that difficult. And it's just about getting on and doing it. And I think you're right. Lots of white men really need to step up to the plate now. Like I say, it's not an emergent problem like what does displacement look like in technology? We're only at the very beginning of that kind of discourse. But this one, we know what the problems are. And it's going to take a high level senior commitment to actually making that happen. It's not rocket science, not hard to do. It's just complete lack of will. You mentioned earlier that recently you took the plunge and you moved from London up to Manchester. How has that been? Well, the move to Manchester has just been amazing. I loved London, don't get me wrong. I had a very good career there. It was really good to me. I met some amazing people. Maybe it was the Brexit situation as well. If we're going to make a difference somewhere, would it be somewhere like Manchester? I say this not without being mean to London, but there was a certain sense of smugness in London. Everybody in London practically voted Remain. Any of the stuff I saw on Twitter or workshops or stuff that I attended, people seemed to be thinking, it's going to be okay for us. And I thought, yeah, it's probably going to be okay for London, but it's going to be a hell of a lot worse for other places. My husband and I thought, well, maybe now is the time to move somewhere that's a bit smaller, that we could make more of an impact and might be able to help. That's funny because I felt exactly the same way, but somehow I ended up in Wellington. (laughs) Maybe I should have looked a bit closer to home. (laughs) That's a bit extreme, all right? Yeah. There were also other issues, to be fair. I mean, we thought, are we going to stay in London until we're at our retirement age and at 65 and clear our mortgage? Or would we look at some place where we could move and we could be mortgage-free? 
you make those compromises to fit your lifestyle. And we both are freelance. And so that has a certain amount of precariousness about it that we were concerned about. And we thought we can do that in Manchester. And we have done that. We've got a lovely house we'd never have been able to afford in Bolton. We've loved every minute of it. We also have a garden, which is shocking to us because when we were lived in London, we had a deck and some bamboo trees. So there has been a lot of Googling in the garden centre going, what is that plant? Will it grow on our garden? That's been amazing because to have something that is so not technical and to get us away from the screens, it's just been amazing. My son came to visit us recently and he saw Alan Titchmarch's Complete Guide to Gardening. He was just appalled. Who stole my parents? <laughs> that is a great story. <laughs> you talked earlier about how you worked in the arts and you worked in theatre. Did you ever produce any plays? And if so, which was your favourite one? No, I didn't ever produce plays. I worked largely as an arts administrator and I obviously would pick plays for the theatre and the arts centre to go on as well as curating art exhibitions, etc. But my personal favourite would have to be Beckett. Waiting for Godot is a personal favourite of mine. We have a couple of closing questions for you. We'd love on the show to make sure that our listeners get new things to listen to and to read and to find out about. Could you kick us off by recommending a Twitter account we should follow? Well, I'm Irish. I follow at Border Irish, which is a parody account for the Irish border, which is both poignant and very, very funny. Brilliant. It's actually been quite a common theme when we've asked people that they pick some sort of parody related to whichever country they're in. We've had Canadian ice hockey parody accounts and all sorts. So thanks for continuing the theme. Apart from this one, of course, a podcast. I would have to say Tech for Good Live, which is from Manchester. It's uh, Rebecca Beret Evans, who does the Tech for Good Live series in Federation. She's got some really interesting content and she has all of the podcasts from our Federation Presents series. Tech for Good is one of those podcasts that comes up as, if you like this, you should also like this on our feed. So yeah, definitely a good shout. And a book, nonfiction or fiction? I'd have to go for How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. It's quite a chilling historical reminder about the rise of authoritarianism. And he has some very interesting little grids where you can check off, has this happened yet? Has this happened? Comparing it to history. And it's quite sobering, but it's a very well-written book. That sounds terrifying. I think I'd have to do that maybe with a bottle of beer by my side. And finally, a charity or social enterprise we should support. You should follow Foodonite, which is one of our companies, which is set up by Caroline Stevenson. And it's amazing. Its object is to work with restaurants. And when you choose a meal, there's a Foodonite option on the menu. When you choose the Foodonite option, a hot meal goes to a homeless person in whatever the area the restaurant's in. We're great supporters of hers, and I'd like to get more people following her on Twitter. I've never heard of that. Thank you. That's wicked. Emer, thank you so much. That's been brilliant. We've really enjoyed all of your stories. It's been wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. That was awesome. Kamala, what did you make of our chat with Emer? Oh, that was really amazing. We were just reflecting on how easy the edit for this is going to be because it sounded like Ima had prepared for every single answer, like we sent her the exam questions in advance. It was so clear that she worked with really senior people because she was so succinct and to the point and yet really managed to get a powerful message across. What did you think? Absolutely. I'd say it's probably a 101 for leaders working in the technology space. 
to listen to this episode, how to work with senior people who don't understand technology and how to convince them of the benefits of that, but also help them make sensible decisions. She was just so adept at it. A bit of a theme we're seeing emerge across the episodes is moving from the art space. We've had it with a couple of our previous people as well. She spent the initial part of her career in senior level positions in arts and theatre in Ireland and then has made this switch, not very incrementally, from that space into all levels of government, local government, civic tech, city hall and then central government. It's clear that the kind of critical thinking required to work in the arts is also really valuable in technology. Listening to this podcast would give all those people who are doing humanities and arts degrees some kind of hope because they're often told that they're not very useful degrees. We've had loads of people on who have started off there and have ended up doing some really cool stuff. And actually, a lot of them have ended up in really senior leadership positions as well. Yeah, definitely. The takeaways from senior leaders in that sector, you don't need to understand technology, you need to understand how it affects the outcomes for your users and what your organisation needs to be aware of. I also loved her reflections on some of the challenges of working in the tech space. The social media insights and the stories from GDS days were brilliant. And we can see that now, we can see the legacy of it is still ongoing. What did you think of her thoughts on regulation and some of the darker sides of technology? I thought it was great how she brought that up and how she is really a pioneer in that space. When she talked about the work that she'd done at the Federation and setting that up with the co-op, it sounded really cool. This idea of a different vision of the future of the digital economy that is perhaps what we haven't had so far, one that looks much more inclusive and one that puts ethics first. I thought it was great how she talked about how users are now catching up to what these tech companies have on them. I speak for myself in that as well. She talked about healthcare companies moving into technologies. She said, isn't it enough that you have all of our content and all of our time and now you want our bodies too? That gave me shivers a bit really interesting to keep in mind that not all of this is good and to make sure that we have the people with the right skills to be able to write policies to regulate those companies. On the point of inclusion, the other conversation which was fantastic was around getting women into tech and having more inclusive communities and teams within technology. Some of the ways in which we see organizations commonly try to solve this problem is kind of naive let's run a workshop and we'll have a panel of women talking about what it's like to be a woman in the technology leadership space. Amor completely cut through that and was saying, look, all of the evidence is there. This is one space in which we know we can follow the money. That argument should be really easy to make, but somehow it's not. The simple way that we need to get more women into technology is for men to advocate for that. She said, I don't want to go to another workshop about women in tech because we understand the problem and we know how to solve it. There are no more excuses. That was so brilliant. I was actually just at a dinner party the other day with a woman developer and she said that when she was at university, she was asked to go to schools all the time and talk about what it's like to be a woman in tech. And she said that she felt often that she was lying and that she was sort of giving a false impression of what it was like. And in the end, she just got burnt out. And now she literally cannot do it anymore. That just reminded me of what Ima was saying, not just about women speaking about women in tech, but also about some of that work being done by men as well and how important that is. 
It also reminded me that people who are in a minority in tech or in any industry often bear the emotional burden of having to fight against it. Spaces that talk about increasing inclusion put the burden of that work onto the people who are already marginalized. Aim are bringing it back to men and talking about the need for them to advocate for us and particularly white men really reinforced that for me and that was great to hear. What I also loved towards the end was some of the more lighthearted conversation around lifestyle choices, what it's meant for Aimer and her family to move to Manchester as they're getting towards the more senior parts of their career. Some of the choices around that were brilliant, especially with gardening. That was probably my most hilarious moment. I love that she described her kids coming home and seeing an Alan Titchmarsh book. I was like, wow, Alan Titchmarsh. I haven't heard of him for ages. I suppose that's what people with gardens do. And finding that balance, really, she's moved between all of these different sectors and is now in a place where she's got all of the freedom of being freelance, but also the instability that that brings. The way that her and her partner have decided to mitigate that is to put themselves in a far easier financial situation. It's really important for us to remember that, especially in places like London and in the big cities, it's easy to get caught up in the career progression We talk a lot about career progression on this show, but I'd also like us to remember the personal consequences and choices that come with that. It really feels like Aimer has made good choices. And speaking of good choices she made, I really love that story about when she worked for the London Data Store and she opened up London Transport's data to third-party vendors. I just want to say thank you so much for saving hours and hours of people's lives. She's probably saved a lifetime. In some way, we can also blame her for that feeling that you get exclusively as a Londoner when you get down to the tube platform and you see the time ticker roll up as four minutes to the next tube and everyone is absolutely besides themselves with rage because four minutes is completely unacceptable. (laughs) That was also a really cool story because the devs came to her and said, hey, do you think we should do this? But, you know, it might bring down the server. And she was like, I don't care, do it. Once again, showing some C-suite executive decision-making, taking some risks and getting stuff done. That was awesome. That was a really cool story. And what it likely did was prompt the organization to make their systems more resilient. So the outcome of it was good in the end. and It wouldn't have happened unless she'd forced the issue in the first place. A lesson for us there. Absolutely. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.